Let's pray one more time together. Okay, let's pray. Father, now we come before you in thanksgiving and praise. I'm so grateful, Lord, for the weekly exposition of your word. We can't skip over difficult passages of Scripture. And you've ordained for us now to be in this particular text. And it's so glorious what you're declaring here. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty and the wonder of your word. Help us to see that in your light we see light. Because you are the God that not only is all-knowing, but you see everything as it is. You see everything in truth. And it humbles us and it gives us pause. As John says in the letter of John, that we are to walk in the light even as you are in the light. And Father, we're grateful that you have given us the mercy and the grace to humbly bow beneath you and to say with Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know how weak we are. You know how frail we are. You know how dependent we are. You know how bankrupt we are in it of ourselves. And we hear the words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're blessed because they acknowledge their bankruptcy. They're blessed because they acknowledge their poverty before a holy God. And Lord, we acknowledge that today. And we say, Lord, there is no one here who has anything to commend themselves before a holy, righteous God. And so, Lord, help us. Help me now to preach as it were before the throne of God and help us to listen as it were before the throne of God. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This is the second sermon dealing with the subject of the wrath of God. And I mentioned that in my prayer because it is so true that homiletics, which is how you preach, is going to really affect you as a church. And I want our church to understand that the reason why we go through the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, line upon line, text upon text, is not because the pastor is rigid. It's because the, the, the words of Scripture are full of riches. It's because God in His wisdom understands what we need more than the pastor understands what you need. And so the churches wherein pastors sift and select and skip and hop over passages of Scripture to those passages of Scripture that they think people want to hear, those pastors are doing their people a terrible disservice. And I don't say that in any sort of self-congratulating way. I say that as a person who, even before I was a pastor, before I was preaching, and when I was listening to the weekly preaching of the Word of God, how much I appreciated from my pastors to hear the Word of God being expositionally, verse by verse, book by book, preached to me so that line upon line... God was exposing me to the whole counsel of God for my good and for His glory. And so we come to a text of Scripture that on, on the surface of it 
And coming from the perspective of a natural mind, coming from the point of view of an unbeliever that doesn't share the biblical worldview and doesn't comprehend the character and nature of God, this text of Scripture is as adverse as anything because of the fact that we are, number one, in the New Testament. And number two, we are dealing with a subject of wrath. So many people today in evangelicalism have a Marcion view of the Bible, and I've pointed this out before. Marcion, that old fourth-century heretic who said that the Old Testament was a throwaway testament, that the God of the Old Testament was too judgmental and too wrathful, and he was too hateful, and, and there was all the judgment and vengeance. He said it was just a book that was no longer useful. And so he did away with that book, and consequently, he did away with the book of Revelation as well, because the book of Revelation also contains quite a bit of judgment and wrath. So Marcion found himself with a highly edited version of the Bible that only had a few books after he was done with it. But you see, on a virtual level, many people, even in the church today, operate much in the same way. They want to skip over and they want to avoid those passages of Scripture that they don't find to be agreeable to their own attitude, their own perspective, and dare I say, their own political correctness today. I tell you what, you're not going to be invited on Fox News or CNN if you come up there and you say, God has wrath. You're not going to be welcome back to, you know, whoever's... I remember the days of Larry King. I don't know what they're doing now, but... You're not going to be welcomed back onto the platform of mainstream media if you keep talking about that the God of the Bible is an angry God who has judgment, who's going to punish sin, and who actually has hell, and who actually is going to dispense His righteousness on a very unrighteous people, and who's going to unleash His vengeance and His wrath. You see what I'm saying? That is not a manageable, moldable, that is not a containable, flexible God. And that is what people want today. Folks, make no mistake about it. What our contemporary culture seeks above everything else is an idol. Oh, maybe they're not looking for a wooden idol or an idol made out of stone. But it's an idol of the mind nevertheless. They want to carve it and chip away at it. And they want to, they want to make and fashion this idol in their mind's eye what he ought to be rather than who God really actually is. And so the editing process begins. And you talk to people all the time. I talk to folks, neighbors, friends, people on the streets when we go to the colleges to talk with the students and they have their own idea of God and they say, oh, I don't, I don't believe in a God like that. My God would never do that. My God is just a loving God. He loves everybody, accepts everybody. He doesn't care what you do in the bedroom. See, people have made an idol after their own heart. They have fashioned an idol in their own image but as I said last time that we looked at this passage of Scripture, the author of Hebrews is the most unpolitically correct person in the face of the earth. He doesn't care what popular opinion is. He is not sensitive to the needs of a narcissistic, humanistic, atheistic society. And that is where we are. And we just did the reason rally uh, a couple weeks ago now. We went down to Washington, D.C. to reason with atheists. And what we found is that we found a group of people reveling in unbelief and hatred towards God, wearing things that I can't even describe to you, and speaking things and blasphemies that are unutterable, and taking their children to listen to the hate, go, like going to a picnic to blaspheme and hate on God. 
Well, you know, of course, God sits in the heavens and he laughs. But it just shows you that the condition of man is dire and that he has not esteemed the holiness and the righteousness of God as he ought to. And so the book of Hebrews serves a very practical function for us today. And that is to realign and reorient ourselves to the true and living God, who He really is. The book of Hebrews is going to shatter all misconceptions of who God is in people's minds and is going to present us with a God who is not only holy, but is also a threatening God. Look at verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nothing about white tunnels. Nothing about light at the end of a tunnel. Nothing about people passing over to the other side and hearing a chorus of angels or seeing angelic beings welcoming them. None of that. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I remember a couple years ago, I don't know how many years now, I underwent surgery. I had double knee surgery. It's a miracle I could even stand here today. (laughs) And the guy came in to knock me out. You ever been knocked out before? Oh, and this guy, I tell you what, he was so sly. He was so smooth. He comes in talking to me about basketball and sports. I'm like, oh, I like this nurse. This guy's cool. And he's telling me about, oh, what's your favorite team and this and that. I said, oh, I kind of like I was out like a light, and I felt nothing. I didn't understand the passage of time, that there was hours of surgery that had transpired. Next thing I know, I woke up, and there was Trish standing next to me. Actually, no, I woke up for a second to two nurses arguing in the, in the, uh, in the, the, the room where I was at, literally arguing with each other, shouting match. And one nurse came in and said, ladies, we have a patient here. Anyway, I thought I'd share a little, fun, a little funny detail what happened. I'm not really a funny type, you know, anyway, but. And then I kind of really came to, and there was Trish standing next to me. I tell you what, it was like a dream. I was out and I was awake. I think that's the way it's going to be when you die. You're going to take your last breath in this world, and then you're going to wake up, and guess what? This world is going to seem as if it was a dream. The Bible says your life is a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. That's why when the author of Ecclesiastes looks back at all of life and he sees all the misery and all the chaos and he sees all the dysfunction and he sees all of the sin and all the filth and all the darkness of the world, he has chased it all out. He has looked, he has explored everything this world had to offer him. And he finally came to the conclusion, he said, you know what? This is the chief end of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. You want to have real wisdom? If you rely on yourself, look to yourself, hope in yourself, trust in yourself, you will sink down into eternal quicksand. That's why Jesus said, if you build your life on my words, Jesus said, I will compare you to a wise man who built his life on the rock. So that when the storms come in and the the storms of life come pounding down upon you, you will stand in the evil day. 
And when you stand before a holy God in eternity in the tribunal of heaven and you stand before a holy God to give an account for your life and you have the rock to stand on, you will stand. And the Bible says you will stand and not be condemned. You will stand in the congregation of the righteous. But the wicked are not so, the Bible says. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, I am not here to simply preach to you a three-point sermon, even though that's probably how many points I have. I'm not just here to do the church thing, to preach to you the evangelical script. I am looking at real people who are really actually going to stand in front of a holy God one day and give an account. Either I believe that or I am a hireling. Either I truly genuinely believe that I'm standing as a dying man speaking to dying people who will one day give an account for their entire life or my Christianity is fake. I cannot do it, folks. I can't tickle people's ears. You, my church knows me well enough. I really can't do that because the Word doesn't let me do that. And I determined long ago that I was going to be a slave to the Bible. And I was going to teach whatever the Bible teaches, whatever it teaches. That's what I'm going to teach. I'm not going to skip over it to try to grow a big church. I'm not going to skip over it to make people comfortable so that our, our tithes go up. I'm going to preach the Word of God. I'm going to let God do whatever He wants with the preaching of His Word. Whether there's five people in here or 500 people in here, it doesn't matter to me. Because you see, as a preacher, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 tell me, I have to stand before the throne of grace, before the Bema seat of Christ. I am going to have to give an account for every word that I uttered while I was up here. And that's terrifying. I'm sorry. If that offends you, I, I mean, I don't like to offend people, but guess what? If there's one person I don't ever want to offend is I don't want to offend God. And on that day, hate me all, hate me one. But there's one person I do not want to hate me, and that is God. I want His approval and only His approval. I had to get that out of my system, you see, because what we're talking about today is a very sobering subject, and the subject is the subject of apostasy. What we're looking at in the book of Hebrews is people who at one point made a profession to believe in the new covenant, to believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in what he did on the cross, and then through a series of events, ultimately going back to their own personal unbelief and what the book of Hebrews calls an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. In other words, there's a point at which a human being uh, who has made some sort of semblance of a profession to Jesus Christ, at some point there, internally, there comes a moment of decision where a line is crossed, as Jonathan Edwards is famous for saying, that men will undo themselves eternally with one thought. He was talking about the decision to walk away from the living God. And I've seen it time and time again. I can sit up here. I don't like to talk about myself or my own personal experiences much, but sad to say, sad to say, I, I don't wear this as a badge of honor. I say this with sorrow in my heart 
that I have seen person after person after person after person make a profession of faith. We're getting ready to do a baptism. I have stood in the waters of baptism, baptizing individuals in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, only to see those individuals just freak out in a few months, fizzle out, and go out of the church, back into the darkness of the world, and begin to speak blasphemous things about the Christ they said they were hoping in and they were trusting in. So this is real. If you haven't seen it yet, you will see it in your life. You will see it in your life. Therefore, the message of Hebrews is a very relevant one. The argument of Hebrews is rather simple. His argument is called an a fortiori argument. Look with me at verse 26. In other words, what he's saying here is that there is a movement from the lesser to the greater. That's what's known in Latin as an a fortiori argument. It's going from something, uh, uh, something of a lesser degree to a greater degree, and the logic of it is found right here in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, this goes back to the Levitical law, to Deuteronomy, and the stipulations of what do you do when a person has, annulled, has, has abandoned the covenant? See the word there, set aside? That term there implies a complete and total renunciation of the old covenant. It's somebody that said, yeah, we follow Moses. Yes, we follow Yahweh. Yes, I'm willing to follow the Levitical law. And then at some point, because of unbelief, they make a conscious decision to set the law of Moses aside. And therefore, what Hebrew says, how much severe punishment. In other words, there is a much greater accountability, a much greater punishment that a person will undergo than the death penalty for disregarding the new covenant. So what follows is an indictment of the apostate, a threefold indictment of the apostasy. And this is set out for us in order to understand the fact that the person who has, who has abandoned faith in Jesus Christ deserves the wrath and the punishment of God more than the person who set aside the old covenant. They had their way of verifying this. It was built on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every matter, according to uh, uh, Deuteronomy, every matter had to be carefully investigated, and on the basis of the witnesses of two or three people, then the case would be decided, and in this case, the apostate would be determined to be exactly what he is, somebody who had broken the covenant, well, to a much, and, and that person suffered the penalty of death under the old covenant. And we think, well, boy, that was very severe for that to happen in the Old Testament. That's not the way the author of Hebrews is thinking. The way the author of Hebrews is thinking is, how much more severe is the punishment under the new covenant? Why? This is why. The transgression has gotten greater. The transgression has gotten more severe. And let's say, let's put it this way. The blasphemy is greater because they are sinning against greater light. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 4 just to remind you of what? has already been said regarding this. Actually, excuse me, Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's saying us in the new covenant versus them in the old covenant. Why? He says, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that's speaking about the giving of the law at Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, emphasis on the word just, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How great is this new covenant salvation? Just look at the cross. Just look up at the cross and see before you there the Lamb of God. Not a typological Lamb of the Passover, but you're looking at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. And you're looking at the Son of God on the cross bearing the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of sinners who have violated God's law. And he's taking the punishment as a substitute. It's vicarious, meaning he stands in our place to take the brunt of the wrath and the fury and the anger of God's justice. And then he, and then he offers himself freely to us by faith so that we can put our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence only in him. And then a person looks at that offering and says, I have nothing to do with it. It means nothing. Ugh, religion, can't stand it. Think of the blasphemy. God has nothing else to offer you. I tell a crowd of college students, I'm often preaching at the college, and I tell them, God did not send His only Son if there's another way. If there's another option on the table, you don't give your only begotten Son precious beyond estimation. If there's another option on the table for redemption, the reality is there is no other way for man to be redeemed. The Son of God had to come. He had to become incarnate. He had to take on humanity. He had to live a perfect life. He had to die a perfect death. He had to shed His blood. He had to rise again. And He had to ascend into heaven at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you look upon that, and then you disregard it as common, because that's what it's saying here. You go back to chapter 10. That's exactly what they're doing here. Notice the threefold indictment. How much more severe do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, how much more severe the punishment so what happens here is actually what we can call three blasphemous reversals. Did you pick up on it? Did you pick up on it going through? We've been going through the book of Hebrews now for some time. Did you pick up on the themes that Hebrews has already taught us about? Number one, first reversal. The person that turns away from the new covenant tramples the exalted Son of God underfoot. You see that? 
This is extreme irony that the author is utilizing here to paint a very vivid picture of what it is that the apostate is actually declaring when they apostatize. What they're saying is that they are trampling underfoot the exalted Son of God. The idea of being underfoot goes back to Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is used in the book of Hebrews over and over and over again for the fact that Jesus will sit on the throne and his enemies will be under his feet. And what the apostate is doing by turning his back his or her back on the risen Christ is what they're saying is that they are virtually on the throne. Christ is the enemy under their feet. They are exalted and Christ is subdued. It's a total reversal. It's a complete blasphemous proposition. You find Psalm 110, for example, in chapter 10, verse 13. It says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and now he's waiting. Waiting for what? Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And we looked at the implications, the radical, radical implications of that. There's another reversal. There's also the desecration of the blood of the covenant. Can it get any more blasphemous than to attack or to disregard the blood? See, the blood is a symbol of the sacred life of Jesus. The blood is symbolic of the purity of Jesus' life. Leviticus says the life of the, of the soul, the life of the, of the man is in the blood. In other words, the blood is, is, speaks of the life source of Jesus Christ. And his life is pure and holy and precious. Let me read to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, Know that you were not redeemed with perishable things, things like silver or gold, from the futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood. See that? How precious is it? It is as the blood of a lamb who is unblemished, unspotted, it is the blood of Christ. And the word that is used here when it says he has regarded the blood as unclean, the, the, the Greek word just literally means common. It's a common thing. It's, it's nothing special, nothing sacred about it. There's nothing religious about it. There's nothing supernatural about it. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing holy about it. It's just a common his death is no, no better than the death of any other person that was killed on the cross back in the first century in the Roman Empire. Don't you know the Romans crucified hundreds if not thousands of people? There's no difference between what that guy, that Nazarene from Jerusalem, what he did and all the other people that have died on the cross. No difference. No, you're regarding it as just a common thing. When according to the new covenant, it is the soul of the covenant. It is the power of the covenant, if you would. It is the glue that holds the new covenant together. Jesus said in Luke, this is my blood of the new covenant. Further than that, what the apostate is saying is that the blood that he had professed 
had sanctified him. Because notice what it says. It says, he counted it as unclean, the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified. Now we have a we have a distinction to make there. What is that referring to? I think that what that's referring to is the profession, the apparent profession that was made by, uh, uh, with reference to the blood, that the apostate was declaring himself to have been sanctified, declaring himself to have been cleansed by the blood, but now he disregards it. And this is what bears out when you see a person apostatize. I tell you, nothing can be more grieving to my heart then having spent, I've spent about a year with one individual, week after week after week after week, meeting consistently with them, praying with them, counseling them, going through the Word, Bible study, letting the individual pray, I'll pray for him, he prays for me, back and forth, back and forth, only to see the guy renounce his faith in Christ about six months later. It is that people that have prayed with you, People that have preached with you, people that have evangelized with you, people that have, that, that have uh, uh, gone through the motions of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then those folks who say that the blood had sanctified them actually regarded it as nothing, that it did nothing for them, in fact. It is a terribly, a cold chill should come down our spine when we see folks on Facebook who used to pray with you now putting a new status on their Facebook account that says agnostic, LGBTQ, and proud, atheist. I had a friend who did this, and he, he was an extremely intelligent Christian. And he changed his status on Facebook, and he put that his new status was that he was a deist, which means there's a God, but he's impersonal. We'll never know him. There's nothing we can know about him. In other words, he just rejects the Bible. But see, God sees the evil in all of it. You cannot fool God. And I've had the sad opportunity of confronting some people that have gone through a state of apostasy, and that's always what I like to focus on. I love them, and I've, be, I've, ple, I've plead, pleaded with people that are in this condition, and I've told them, please, you need to repent. Your time is short. You're going to face God. You think you're having fun now in your sin? Enjoy it while it lasts. The Bible says God is fattening you up for the slaughter. Your only hope is to repent, trust, go back to your first love, repent of the worldly things that you now find pleasure in. Repent and turn. Last thing. Not only is there a complete disregard for the blood of Christ, but the last reversal is that they return insult for grace. It is the spirit of grace that they are insulting. And what that means is that God's spirit is the agent through which the grace of God is applied to the believer. It is the Spirit that brings all of God's gracious influences upon us. He lavishes upon us peace. He lavishes upon us discernment. He lavishes upon us wisdom. He lavishes upon us assurance, the testimony of a heart that knows God. He lavishes upon us the spirit of adoption that cries out to God, Abba, Father. And all of that grace, the apostate throws back into God's face and says, I don't want it. I don't need it. 
I found something better. I found something better over here. I found something better on the internet. I found something better at my job. I found something better in adultery. I found something better in money. I found something better in family. I found something better in philosophy. I found something better in my sexuality. I found something better in my liberal views. I found something better in politics. I found something better anywhere but the grace of God. Is that not an insult? That's insulting. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us we are not even to grieve the Spirit. We don't even want to grieve the Spirit. We dare not grieve Him in the slightest bit, let alone full frontal insult to the Spirit of God. Now, we have some more work to do, and that is verses 30 to 31, which is really an amazing way to end this passage He says, for we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, what's happening here is that there is a simultaneous warning and comfort for the people of God. If you want to, or I can just read it to you, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 35. The author of Hebrews is actually quoting out of Deuteronomy 32, and he's quoting these two verses that function as as a way of purifying the people of God. And this is what happens. In verse 35, God is saying that he is going to purify his people by, by uh, 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 by, by lashing out in vengeance. That's where he says, vengeance is mine, and retribution. In other words, he will pay it back. In due time, their foot will slip, the apostate, the covenant breaker, the wicked. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, you have not been born again. It is the greatest logic, and it's only logical, it's, it's, it's pure reason for you to live all of your days in, in deepest anxiety, in deepest turmoil. You should be, how can you sleep? Knowing that at any time, your life can be snuffed out just like that, and then you will have to stand before God. Listen, the, the, the things are impending, and it is coming quickly upon them. That means that judgment is not slack. That means that God is not asleep at the wheel. Oh, I I don't know everyone in this room, and I don't know where you're at spiritually with God, but I I feel like an evangelist today because i got to tell you, this wrath, this judgment, this vengeance is real. It's going to shatter every little social media conversation that you've ever had. It's going to shatter every little bit of technology that you're delighting in today, that you're hoping in today. It's going to shatter your little virtual online life, and you are going to come into contact with the concrete being of God. You're going to come into pure reality. Notice, it is a terrifying thing, thing to fall into the hands of what? The idea of what those Christians keep preaching? Oh, yes, I understand the judgment is coming. No, Hebrews is saying this is the living God. 
The living God is a slogan that's used in the Bible to refer to God as the one true God, the God whereas all other gods are false. In other words, you have no fear of Allah. You have no fear of the God of Mormonism or the God of Jehovah Witnesses or the God of the, 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 the theology of Zoroastrianism or Confucianism or, or whatever, all the competing deities because in fact... There is only one true and living God. And you're, you're to fear Him and to fear Him only. But what's happening in Deuteronomy is that as much as God is presenting the fear of the vengeance of God, He's also seeking to comfort His people. Let me, let me try to show you how this works. Look at verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32. Or I can read it for you, but it says, For the Lord will vindicate his people. That's interesting because that's different than what you find in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, uh, at the end of verse 30, where it says the Lord will judge his people. The original context of Deuteronomy is saying God's people are going to be vindicated, and you know this is a positive thing, not a negative thing, by the parallel phrase that follows. And he says, I will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone, there is none remaining. You see that there? There is none remaining, bond or free. What is this talking about? This is a call to the faithful house of Israel to stay faithful. Even if it seems like everyone's gone. Even if it seems like everyone's failing. Even if it seems like everyone's turning their back. Now, can you understand how powerful this is in the wilderness generation before going into the promised land where so many are going to perish because they're going to turn their back on Yahweh? They're going to turn their back on the covenant. And God is saying to his remnant people, I will, I will comfort you. I will have compassion on you. I will vindicate you even when everyone is gone. Are you feeling a little bit like that today in society? Nobody holds your views. You're too conservative. Everyone's just dipping into liberalism. Everyone's folding. Oh, man, church after church, pastor after pastor. Oh, LGBTQ. Oh, yeah, of course that's right. Of course that's right. Oh, you still think that's a sin? Wow. Man, what are you, in the Stone Ages? Yeah, it's going to feel like that, I think, more and more and more and more as time goes on in our culture, sadly. I think unless God does a revival and we, as the people of God, we should be on our knees saying, oh God, send a revival, save your people, oh God. Turn the hearts of the wicked, turn the heart of the king. Not in political jargon and political back and forth, but in prayer. Turn the heart of the king. He's leading the nation astray. It's been like that for all generations and all Christians. You want to go back in the history of the Christian church? It is not wise, brothers and sisters, for you not to be students of church history. Have every single, I'm talking to my members now, members of the church, have you read a book on church history? Cover to cover? Don't raise your hand. It's not a competition. What I'm saying is that when you find, uh, when, when, what you'll find in reading church history is that our little American bubble, this little segment of time in history, it's a blip 
on the radar, on the screen of history. And really, when you look outside of this little Disneyland experiment that we're living in, the, the Christian church, for the vast majority of church history, has lived under serious persecution. Thousands, millions have died under persecution. In the book of Revelation, the saints in heaven cry out to God and say, Oh God, how long before you vindicate us? And the Lord says, little while longer, there are more of you to come. Speaking to martyrs. And there are more martyrs to come. And you need, oh, don't even, I, I, go back to church history, but what I'm saying is you don't even need to go to church history. Just look to the Muslim world. Just look to the Hindu world. I just read an article. We posted it on Facebook. Hindus slaughtering Christians because they're holding to their Christian conviction. You think Islam is the only threat facing the church around the world? Hindus can become just as violent as Muslims. I didn't know if you knew that. But just look at the times that we're living in. It is time to awake from sleep. It is time uh, to echo the words of the prophet. It is time to seek the Lord. How do we end? How do we end? Because I can't look at my notes anymore. We'll be here for 45 minutes. More. I want to end it this way. That if the way that you interact with these things mentioned in verse 29, disregarding the blood trampling the Son of God on their foot, insulting the Spirit of grace. If those are the steps to apostasy, then let's reverse the perversions and let's get it right. How do we apply this to ourselves? This is how. Remember that Christ's heavenly session is everything. Christ at the right hand of God means that He is there to intercede for us, from the, from the throne of grace, He dispenses the grace of God to us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He helps us in our weaknesses. He, he, he conquers our enemies. And guess what? Hebrew says He will return to reward us. So that is, what the, that is what the risen Son of God, that is what Jesus on His throne, that's what that should speak about. It should speak about the fact that Christ on the throne means we are going to conquer with Him. He sympathizes with us and He helps us through His eternal Spirit. The blood. The blood is what you need to go back to every time you fail in your Christian walk. Every time you fail as a Christian, you need to go back to the blood because the blood is what sanctifies you. The blood is what consecrates you. It is the, yeah, that's how I feel about it. I was just making sure it was either for or against. I couldn't tell. The blood is what makes us clean. The blood reminds us that our justification is not on the basis of our merit. The blood reminds us that our justification, our right standing before God, is only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I tell you what, perfect atonement should result in perfect encouragement. When you're discouraged, oh man, get up. Jesus shed his blood. And I'm... I'm right there. Sometimes I slog through this life. I don't even, is that a word? I, I, I just make it, my wife will tell you, but I won't let her tell you because I don't want her to embarrass me. <laughs> but she will tell you that sometimes I need the depth of encouragement. I need serious encouragement. You know, pastors, I mean, 
It's not a pity party, but just to give you a little insight into pastors, pastors deal with what's known as sermon remorse. (laughs) It's like when you get down and you tell yourself inside your head, I'll never do that again. That was the worst thing I've ever done, right? I don't even know how they're going to come back next week. The enemy has his way of discouraging us as well as you. And if we don't go back to the blood that we, are, we, we speak and we serve and we love and we minister and we obey on the basis of the blood, what else is going to encourage you? And then last of all, the spirit of grace means this, be grateful. Part of the secret of worship is that you begin with thanksgiving on your lips. You know, not into worship today? You know, you're not, not into it right now? Maybe you enter into a prayer, a prayer meeting, a prayer circle. Just not really feel like praying. Just going to stay quiet for a half an hour and listen to other people pray. I tell you what, begin to thank. Begin with thanksgiving. Begin to express how, your gratitude to God. And I bet you before long, you're going you're, you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna be hogging that prayer meeting. Because you don't have enough time in the world to be thankful to God for His grace. Thankfulness is the path of genuine worship. And when we reverse these things in our own lives, we can have the confidence, we can have the assurance that when we fall into the hands of the living God, we are going to be safe. We're going to be safe. I don't know about you, but maybe I'm more morbid or whatever, but I think of death all the time. My wife won't let me not think of death. She reminds me of death probably every day. She's sane. Don't worry, people. (laughs) What kind of wife do you have? She's eternally minded, praise the Lord. That's why I married her. She's constantly just, you know, reminding me of the reality of eternity and life is short and eternity is long. I mean, think about it just on a pure logical basis. I plead with you. I plead with you. Life is so short. Your life is so fragile. It's just, it's like this. And eternity, I can't do this. So just on a lot, not that it's based on logic, but, but, but Christianity is pure wisdom. That it is only the wisdom of God that you humble yourself beneath a God who is holy and who will judge And I pray, I'm going to pray for you right now. I pray that God will give you that wisdom, will give you that grace to see where life is found. Father, I come before you solely on the basis of the blood of Jesus, knowing that I have no merit of my own, knowing that there's nothing within me that commends me to God. And I stand in front of your people today, beseeching you to do what only you can do. I've preached everything I could pre- to think to preach. I've said everything I could think to say. And so now, God, I ask, by your mercy, move among us. By your mercy, by your grace, and for your glory, turn the heart of anyone here who's just not in Christ who has not made peace with God, and then for your people, get a hold of our hearts, grip us with gospel fear, grip us with sobriety, that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. 
and that our calling is to persevere to the end so that we will be saved. Please preserve and protect your people from the wiles of the devil. I pray all these things in the wonderful, life-giving, life-saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.